Now, I'm really excited to be joined by my next guest, who is an impressive CV, to say the very least. And that really is saying the absolute least, ladies and gentlemen. He designed all of Nike's kits from 2000 to 2006 before overseeing Puma's kits from 2006 to 2010 as their creative director. He's currently at the heart of something that I know for a fact will be of huge interest to many of our listeners. Mark Design Academy affords people the opportunity to enrol in courses that help people design football kits without incurring what we all know are high costs for third level institutions Craig Buglass how are you? Yeah I'm good thank you thanks for having us No problem at all Craig first of all before we talk about your past work and some of the iconic kits that you designed Spark Design Academy could you explain to our listeners what it is? Yeah absolutely Um, so basically a number of years ago myself and my business partner Rob Warner um, we kind of felt that there was a bit of a missing link if you like between kids coming out of university and going into full-time employment and um we would be spending quite a lot of time training them up um and we just felt that there was an opportunity to to maybe fast track those those people coming out of uni um or college so we felt that by giving them our industry expertise which between the two were some Sad to say, it's probably about 60 years between the two. Um, but yeah, it was just, the idea was just to try and enlighten people as to 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 some of the stuff we've learned along the ways, which along the way, which would hopefully help them in their career. Um, so that's how it kind of started because myself and Rob's backgrounds are a lot around football and football kit designs. We kind of started off with that one first and foremost, um, but the intention is to expand that out into all the other different aspects of design that we cover from jackets and sports bras to gym gear and all sorts of things that we've done over the years. So, yeah, that was it really. And um, we're just working on expanding that as much as we can over the next few years, really. And how much of an opportunity is it for people that want to get into this line of work, Craig? Well, I, th- I think it's a big opportunity. I think, um, you know, w- what we've noticed is we've run a lot of competitions around like football kit designs and we've been absolutely astonished around how many people are completely unqualified um, and have never been to college or don't really have the time to go to college. Um, and that was a bit of a light bulb moment for us because two of the people who actually entered the competition and finished within the top three. One of them was a plumber from Stoke and the other was an architect from New York. Um, So, you know, two completely different walks of life. And when we actually spoke to uh, one of the guys, he was saying, look, I just don't have the chance or time to go to uni or college. He says, you know, I've got dependents. So, You know, I want to design football kits, but I have no idea how to get into the industry. I don't have the time. I don't have the money and I've got to support the family. So, you know, for a relatively tiny amount of cash, we basically blow the lid on what it is you've got to do and how to design kits professionally. Um, And it's been quite quite a thing because the guy who actually won the first competition, we actually put him in front of the... Um, creative director and the marketing director from Hummel. Um, and then there's another guy, a guy called Chris Mullen, who did another competition for us. And he's about to move to Dubai and work for another client of ours. 
uh, because they were so impressed with the graphic design work that he did. So it's very real in as much as, you know, when you do the courses, um, there is an opportunity where we can have a look at your work and try and critique it and try and position it in a way where we can put you in front of, you know, some of the, the big hitters within the industry. And you mentioned people that have gone on there and been successful, which is great to see. But to give our listeners a bit of an insight, because as I said, a lot of people listening in will be very interested in this line of work. How viable a career option is it? Because obviously you've been hugely successful, but is it a hard industry to get into? And how much would doing a course somewhere like Spark Design Academy help in furthering an aspiring designer's career? Um, yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, to get into it, you know, if if I take my my kind of history and my my kind of enrollment, if you like, into into the industry. I started off, actually, I was going to be either a graphic designer or a photographer. Um, And I was based, I'd left school with virtually no qualifications. I'm dyslexic. So going through school in the 80s, it wasn't really recognized. So um, unfortunately, I didn't have a really great education, but I ended up in college, um, which was far better for me. Um, And then as I went through the different things that I did at college, like BTEC, BTEC Nationals, eventually did a degree and then my master's at the Royal College of Art. But all the way through that, um, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but ended up doing um, fashion design and then eventually started working in sportswear. But that was just purely through my love of sports and and so on. Um, But with regards to you know, how people kind of get into this world. Really, it's it's through fashion design courses, which is the normal route that people would take. So there's plenty of fashion courses out there that you can do. Um, but then what we were trying to do with regards to football kit design is my understanding is that isn't a course that you can go to to do football kit design specifically. Now, if I'm mistaken in that, I'd, I'd love your listeners to tell me that I'm wrong, but my understanding is there isn't. They're normally more generic type of fashion courses which cover the whole spectrum of the fashion industry. Yeah. So w- with the courses we've done, we've just tried to kind of steer people's um, thought process into one tiny part of the industry, if you like. Yeah, it really is very, very interesting. And something that is also interesting was the recent Ronaldo documentary that was on the BBC. We're going to speak to the director and the writer, Duncan McMahon, here on Scoreline a little bit later. But you, of course, designed the 2002 World Cup winning kit that Ronaldo and Brazil wore in South Korea and Japan. Could you tell us the story behind designing that specific kit? Because it is just so iconic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, I thought the the documentary was absolutely amazing, and I was I was pretty much in tears by the time I watched it, because to be honest, I hadn't really heard too much about it until a couple of well, a month or so before when it started being advertised, and I was I was just absolutely overwhelmed. The fact that it's the twentieth anniversary since Brazil won the World Cup has also been amazing for me. Um, because obviously every time they talk about that, my kit gets shown. Um, but yeah, the, the kit itself, it, I started working for Nike in 2000. Um, 
and did a few kits for Barca and various teams at the time. And then I was tasked with designing the World Cup kits, which at the time when you're designing the kits, you're really focusing on what's the best possible kit design you can give to the athlete for that particular event. Now, with the event going on in Korea and Japan, humidity and the heat and the conditions and the atmosphere was a massive factor. So we'd actually spent quite a bit of time in uh, Japan and Korea researching the event. We went to where the stadiums were going to be and, you know, we just took in the atmosphere. And what we realised very quickly was the traditional polyester knitted garments we felt were just not going to, we're just not going to cut it. So pretty much overnight, we changed our fabric supplier for Nike. Um, now, if you imagine the magnitude of that, it was, I mean, when I look back and the decision that I actually made to do that, I, 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 it must have been some ballsy kid who made that decision because if I was asked to make that decision now, I'd probably <laughs> think really long and hard about it. But um, but yeah, we changed the fabric to what we call a stretch woven. Um, so it's a really, really lightweight fabric. But then what we also did was put another layer of mesh on the underside so it was much closer to the body. So the concept behind it was the mesh would take the moisture away from the body. But because we put a lot of ventilation into the garment, it allows air to circulate. It's like a thermal effect. Um, that you would get from like termite hills. And the idea is it circulates air within the two layers and it allows the products to dry a bit quicker. And we also put a water repellent finish on the outside of the garment so that there was no water coming in. So the whole concept behind it, we called it cool motion, but it's effectively trying to maintain and reduce the amount of moisture that the players had to comprehend. Um, because ideally what we're trying to do is create zero distractions for the players so that they can simply, you know, just just get on with the game. Um, so that is why you see the shards and the vents and the, the mesh around the, the uniform, which in itself became quite iconic. But when you're designing those kits, I mean, I had no idea that Brazil was going to win the World Cup. I had no idea that Ronaldo was going to do a funny haircut or any of that stuff, it's just all the stars seem to align. And then the next minute, they're lifting the World Cup in that kit that I designed, and I was just in floods of tears. I'm not scared to admit it, I was. I was just... And it was quite a quite a euphoric moment because I'm thinking to myself, well, where do I go from here? I've, I've literally designed for the best team on the planet. I've designed a kit and they've won the first ever World Cup in a Nike kit that I've designed, so... It was, it was, it was really overwhelming. Um, and then, as you say, when, when the, when the um, documentary came out, I was, it just brought it all back, which was brilliant. And then I think it was either a day later or two days later, the Nike ad then released and the Nike ad paid homage back to that kit again. And it was, it was just a week of sheer emotion for myself. It was fantastic. It's incredible. I must say that whole journey from Brazil in 2002 and seeing it all come back now, as you say, the 20th anniversary, it has been something unique. And I think 
you had a unique experience and you mentioned there kind of your overwhelming emotions at the time. Could you give us a bit of an insight to go back 20 years? What was it like for you when you're seeing Brazil go through the World Cup? Are you thinking almost like a player or a manager in itself? Like, I could be, obviously you are part of something very, very special, but something that is truly incredible the further they go on into this competition. And what is it like when you see Cafu lifting the World Cup and you know you've been part of something that millions of people around the world will remember forever? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is really, it, it, it's really, yeah, it's really exciting. And it's, it, it, you kind of have mixed emotions as well to some extent, because obviously with us being English, I, I want to see the England team do really well. Um, so, you know, you're kind of thinking, right, well, I kind of do want England to win, but I'd rather Brazil win because it's my, <laughs> my kid, so to speak. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing, but actually... One one example that I would give you, which was which was amazing as well at the time, because we'd actually outfitted the Korean national team. And um I've got to say, when when I designed that kit, it was obviously all of the all of the teams got the same technology, but the garments themselves changed ever so slightly. One might have a graphic on, one might have a collar. But effectively, all of the technology was the same. But with Korea, no one really expected them to do very well in the event at all. And then, like literally overnight, they started playing so well and the whole nation got behind the uniform and the colours and everything. So I'd I'd been over there and I'd um, presented the kits to a whole host of fans and celebrities and all sorts of stuff. And I hadn't even realized when they'd flown me over to do this presentation, it actually went out live on national TV at the time. So the next morning I'm checking out at the hotel and people are coming up to us asking us for an autograph. Now, again, this is before the event kind of kicks off, but as the event started getting better and better and better, they all started accrediting the success to the colors and the technology and the, in the uniforms so all the way through the the event, I was being woken up at like two o'clock in the morning. Listen, can you do a live interview for this radio station? We want to talk to you about X, Y, and Z. So it was just it was just a, an amazing an amazing event. Um, so I had all that to deal with, which was great and dead good fun. And then, as you say, you know, Cafu lifts the World Cup and in that uniform, and you are you just. It, it it's overwhelming. It really is. I mean, I've I've been lucky enough in my life to have a job that I call a hobby, because I design stuff that people wear, whether it's jackets for Bellstaff or golf gear for Dunhill or whatever it is I've done over the years. But then, when you're talking about something like a football kit, my son talks about that kit with such pride. It's in encyclopedias. It's in God knows how many. You know football books and and it's it leaves a legacy behind and it's something that you know I, I probably didn't realize at the time even when the lift in the world cup I, I didn't quite realize the magnitude of what had just happened and with it being 20 years later and they still haven't won another world cup then I've kind of got mixed emotions of well, do I actually want Brazil to win the World Cup and another one, another person's kit, or do I want them to just keep winning? You know that that last time through the one that I did, but 
I mean, it would be nice if Brazil won it, but I've got to be honest, I'd prefer England to win it this time round. But um, yeah, it's an amazing feeling. And it's probably the closest thing I think I'd ever get to score on a goal at St. James's Park in the Gallagher. And that's <laughs> the best way I can describe it, really. Uh, it must have been just the most remarkable of highs and you perfectly articulated it there. But on the flip side of that, I suppose from the outside looking in there's also a pressure attached to designing kits that you know are going to be remembered and judged by millions of people what is that pressure like do you take it in a negative way or do you have to use it as a positive because again it's very similar I suppose to sports people they can either harness that sort of um, concentration on their work or, or they can maybe, maybe take it in a bad way yeah I mean I, th- I think there's always going to be a bit, a bit of pressure when you're designing um, kits for, for you know for global um federations and certainly ones that are you know the most famous on the planet that yes there's definitely an expectation and the federations can be quite difficult to deal with as well um and you're also dealing with managers and players who all have a point of view on you know the stuff that you're doing um but i think at that time i was a, and still am you know as a creative person i'm i'm very headstrong so I tend to, you know, if if I've got my mind focused on what I believe is the best solution for something, you know, I'll stick with it. Um, But I think looking back at that uniform, it was quite interesting because there was a a period um, where it really was a little bit nervy for me because with there being two layers of that uniform, there was a particular moment where one of the players had taken off. I think it was Rivaldo, if memory serves me right. He's taken the shirt off, you know, throwing it around his head, celebrating, and he couldn't get the shirt back on because the two layers had kind of twisted. Um, And in the end, they had to cut the two layer, well, one of the layers out at the side of the field. Thankfully, they didn't go up and score a goal. I think they were playing against Italy. Um, and there was no issue. Um, but the fact that we neglected to to actually tack the inner layer to the outer layer was probably a big mistake. But thankfully, that wasn't on my shoulders because I asked, I actually requested that to happen. Um, but a certain person within the Nike organization didn't want to do it because it was quite late in the process. But um, so, yeah, the pressure then, believe me, I mean, I'm literally sat on the end of the the sofa, like biting my fingers, thinking, oh my God, this I might not even have a job to go into the next day. So, you know, and imagine how many people are watching that yeah. you know, unfold. And a number of a number of months later, we give it to Manchester United. They took the same um technology. Um, and it was the first time that Man United had signed with Nike. And uh, Diego Furlon did exactly the same thing and he couldn't get it back on it again. Um, so lessons learned for sure. Um, and that technology became obsolete, actually. And we went back to more of a traditional one layer approach to designing the kits. Um, so, yeah, you, you definitely, definitely feel the pressure. That's for sure. But um you know, like I say, if you've done your research and you know what you're doing is the right thing, then you've just got to go with it. 
And could you give us some sort of an education into what the process of designing a kit is actually like in terms of where does it start and how do we get how does it come to be what we see eventually on the pitch as we're seeing in Qatar now at the World Cup at the moment and you also alluded to it there very briefly. What sort of pressures are you put under and by who? Is it by the federations themselves? Is it by Nike or Puma, who you're also involved with from 2006 to 2010? Could you give us a bit of an insight into that sort of process of making the kit and the pressures piled onto you also? Yeah, so I think if, if I start with the first section, it's like how, how does the process kind of start and finish? So at the where I always start is with the athletes, with the, the federations, the athletes and in the location. And I always use a, a, um, an explanation, which is form follows function. So what I tend to do is, depending on wherever a football event is, is taking place, I'll try and analyse, you know, what what the temperatures are going to be like, you know, is it going to be um, conditions that are controlled? Because if it is, it kind of takes a lot of the pressure away because you're not having to deal with outside influences. So, you know, you, you can kind of start with that in mind. So you would then go off and visit those areas. Um, you would then be looking at, you know, different technologies. So what's a you know, what's the lightest fabrics or what's going to give you more stretch or, you know, so you'll do a lot of fabric research. Um, You know, we also introduced something called massive colour for that particular period. Um, So we would do a lot of colour research. We'd work around things, what we would call peripheral vision. And the idea of that is trying to put cues on garments so that as the players are playing the game quite quite quickly you know they can turn and they can spot little cues on football kits that just give them just that little notion that that's the play I need to cross the ball to so there's loads of things that go into the design so you start by you know collecting all these little golden nuggets if you like and then then eventually once you've got an idea or a, a kind of starting point that's when you would sit down and start sketching and start figuring out, you know, what, what's the thing going to look like. But then what's also important is as you think about the federations, you've got to be thinking about them because you've got to be respectful to them. So as you'll see over the, the history of football kits, you know, some of them have been heavily graphicized. Some of them are quite plain. Some of them are bright colors you know, the most important thing with any federation is considering their colour palettes and making sure that, you know, you, you're very respectful to that. Um, so you're taking that on board. And then you're also thinking of the fans, you know. So in a lot of cases, you're thinking, well, you've got to be respectful to the colour, but how does that look like on a terrace? How does that look like with a pair of jeans and all those sorts of things? So... There's loads of different factors that you, you consider, um, you know, and if I fast forward to when I was working actually with Umbro, I was I designed an England kit for Umbro um, and it was the first time I'd ever reversed my, pros, my design process. So I would always design with the athlete in mind first, whereas when I designed the England kit, I reversed it round and I'd started designing with the, the, the fan 
in mind. So I wanted something that was going to look great with a pair of jeans. So that was my starting point. And then I reversed the process to then say, right, okay, I've got a look that I'm after now. How am I going to put all of the technology in to make the players be able to perform at their, their, their absolute optimum? Um, so there's lots of different ways you can come at it, but it's all it's all about getting all the right components in front of you. Um, and that's where... When we talk about pressure and the challenges that you've got, if you've done your research well enough, and we also talk we we talk in the industry that eighty percent of your time is going to be spent on research, and twenty percent of your time is going to be spent on designing. So a great example I can give you is, um, I had a relationship with Louis Van Hal. Um, and it was quite a good relationship because I dealt with him loads at um, at Barcelona when he was the manager there. So as that was one of the teams that I used to deal with, I, I kind of got to know him quite well. And then as he went to the Dutch national team, I, I always had this idea that I wanted to give the Dutch national team a really bright, vivid orange and um, I was actually coming out of a nightclub because I used to live in Holland with working for Nike. I was living in Amsterdam and I'd come out of a nightclub and um, someone had handed me a flyer and it just happened to be this bright neon orange flyer. And I thought, I've just found the colour for Holland's next football kit. And um, it, it was literally as simple as that. And I kind of got the, the colour and I thought, right, okay, how do I make this work for all the other teams? And that's where the term massive colour was coined. Um, but with the case with Louis van Gaal, I thought, right, okay, how am I going to get it across? And I always knew with Louis, he, he liked options. So we basically designed a few different options of the kits, but then I put one in the traditional Dutch orange, then I put one in a very safe orange, and then I did this bright fluo orange um, and I presented him the two boring ones first. And at that point, he was obviously a little bit upset. And then I put the flyer on the table, which was this really bright, vivid orange. And he bought straight into it. So what was great was Louis van Gaal had kind of signed off on that, which gave me the confidence that, presenting all the other bright, vivid colours to all the other federations. Once I had Louis on board, I knew the rest was going to be fairly easy. Um, sadly for the Dutch national team, they actually didn't make it to the World Cup that year, so they never got to wear it. Although they might have wore it for some friendlies, but they certainly didn't see it on the world stage. So sadly, it didn't uh, work out as well as I thought it was going to, but it allowed me to get all the colours I wanted across the line for the likes of Brazil and Korea and Belgium and those sorts of teams. Very happily for us here in Ireland, I must say, because I believe we were the team that made sure uh, the Dutch didn't go to that particular World Cup when we yeah, beat them 1-0 yeah, here in Lansdowne Road. So <laughs> apologies for that, Greg. But uh, Roy Keane was too inspired that day, I think, and a great finish from Jason oh, McAteer, so of course. But, um, but for a reason. Yeah, it certainly does. But before I do let you go, Craig, I mean, you were casually dropping in names there that football fans would be in awe of. The likes of Barcelona, Manchester United, England, of course, and as we mentioned already, the likes of um, the Netherlands. Brazil, South Korea. Is there any kit that sticks out in your mind as one that kind of 
goes a bit above anything else that you've done or is it's almost like your children that all the kits you've designed are um, unique in their own way and you love them all uh, kind of in their own individual aspects no there's, there's definitely like if I would say there's a there's a top three of, of the kits that I've done and I always if, if I could sit, stretch it to maybe a top four it would probably be the England kit would come in fourth um, the third one would be the a gold uniform that I designed for Barcelona in 2001. Oh, that was incredible. Uh, sorry, sorry for interrupting, but that was an incredible kit. Yeah, no, no worries. Uh, it, it was, it was great. It was actually the first ever away uniform that outsold the home uniform, which was pretty remarkable um, back in those days. But again, I've got to give credit to Boba Van Zenden, who I worked with on that. Um, and it was his idea to come up with it. He just casually said, well, we're the golden team. Give us a golden uniform and the rest is history. So there was that one. And then it's got to be the Invincibles kit that we did for Arsenal. Um, that was phenomenal. Um, and again, when I designed the kit, I had no idea it was going to go Invincible. Um, the away uniform, which turned out to be the yellow, because that's the great thing about it, the when I designed those two kits, and it was by fluke, actually, because the the home kit was always going to be red and white. The away kit was meant to be like a really dark grey colour, um, but we presented it to Arsene Wenger and David Dean, who was the chairman at the time. And I remember David Dean actually grabbed a hold of the illustrations and threw them at me and said, we're not a great club, we're a sunshine club, we're a happy club. He says, give us something happy. And then we ended up creating the yellow away uniform. And then they went on to be invincible. So that is definitely number two. But number one by a country mile is always going to be Brazil. I mean, you know, it it, it means so much to us. I'm so honoured to have been able to have designed a football kit for, for such a prestigious federation and the most successful you know, team on the planet with regards to international football. And yeah, I mean, what a thing to have been able to do. My my kids' kids and their kids and everything else will talk about their granddad or great-granddad who once designed, you know, um, a World Cup winning football kit for Brazil. And for me, I'm just a mere Geordie from Newcastle and I've just been blessed with being able to do this as a as a job, as a hobby. Well, I don't think we could end on a better point than that. Um, Craig, it was absolutely brilliant to learn about your truly unique path in life. And congratulations on a wonderful career so far. And there is certainly a lot more to come. And thanks very much for speaking to me today. No worries. It's been my pleasure. All the best to all the listeners. Thanks very much. Craig Buglass there, ladies and gentlemen, evoking some great memories from the past. Stick around on Scoreline. Now, as someone born in 2000 and who idolised the Brazilian Ronaldo growing up, I'm really excited to chat with our next guest. He's the director of the superb documentary The Phenomenon Ronaldo that aired for the first time on BBC4 last Tuesday week, telling the story of the iconic Brazilian striker as he recovered from the heartache of losing the World Cup final in 1998 to recovering from injury to inspire the Selecao to a fifth World Cup four years later. The documentary gives an incredible insight into the career and life of a global superstar. Superstar like no other. Duncan McMath, how are you today? 
How's it going, man? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. No problem. It's absolutely brilliant to get the opportunity to chat to you. First of all, Duncan, before I get into the documentary itself, the reaction to it has been remarkable and it has sparked all types of emotions from people of every age. How pleasing has it been for you to see that people have really taken to the documentary, which is a rare thing when it comes to sports documentaries in particular, because as we know, sports fans can be um, very fickle beings, to say the least. Yeah, it's true, but Ronaldo is one of those figures that I think it doesn't matter who you support, when you were born, you know, all you need to have seen is a few YouTube clips and, and you fall in love with him. And, and you know, he's one of those rare footballers. He played for Barcelona and Real Madrid and, and both sets of fans love him. He played for Inter and AC Milan and, and both sets of fans love him. Um, wherever he went, he was idolised. And uh, for us as well, speaking to his family, his former teammates, his former rivals, you know, no one had anything but good words to, to say about him. And, and it made our job a lot easier. And, and, and you're right, it's been fantastic seeing the feedback uh, after the documentary aired. There's just been no negative comments at all. It's it's been it's been all positive, and it's been a mix of of kind of awe from from the younger generation uh, who who maybe didn't see him when when he was playing, and nostalgia from from the people that that long uh, for those days to be back again because he really was an incredible footballer. And and as everyone says who's watched the documentary. You know, it leaves you with that feeling of of what could he have been had it not been for the injuries. But I think, you know, for me, obviously, having gone through all of that archive uh, over the last couple of years, you know, almost the injuries made his story even better. Um, and I think despite the injuries, he's still the best number nine that there has ever been. So I don't think at the end of the day, the injuries mattered too much because obviously the redemption story... Um, still played out, he still won the World Cup and I think he's still remembered as, as the best nine that's ever lived. Yeah, he's certainly my favourite, as I said in the introduction. We'll get into Ronaldo himself, but I just want to kind of get an insight into how you go about making a documentary like this, Duncan, because I have to say I watched it last week and I've watched it about five times since because I knew I was going to be chatting to you and also because it was just a really remarkable piece of work. There was something kind of uniquely truthful and wholesome in the way that you told the story of Ronaldo, who, as you rightfully said, is so beloved by people, not just in Brazil, but across the globe. Um, could you give us an insight into how you approach a project like this? Well, I think um, my personal opinion is that um, the best sports documentaries focus on a, a specific period of time. Um, I think, you know, if you're looking at telling a story about Ronaldo from when he was a youngster and, and joining uh, Cruzeiro and then all the way up to when he when he retired and, and potentially beyond, because obviously he's a he's an important businessman now and he's he's the, the president of two football clubs. It's, you never get enough time to really go deep on any of the story. So, so for me, right from the word go, once we agreed with Ronaldo that we were going to tell his life story, it was all about picking a timeline, picking a, 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 a moment where his story was the most powerful. And, and, and I mean, it, it really took us very little time to decide that it was all about the redemption. And as soon as we presented the idea to him, he loved it as well. Um, and, you know, I, I remember speaking to his agent before I spoke to him and his agent just, he bit my hand off. He was like, yeah, that's the story. That's the story. You've got to do it. So, you know, it was all about 1998, I think as well. 
maybe not so much in Brazil, but certainly in Europe and the rest of the world, for so many people, it was it was still a quite there was still a big question mark as to what happened in the final in '98. You know, myself, I always thought for many many years it was all about kind of gamesmanship and and trying to kind of um, confuse France just before the kickoff and then suddenly putting Ronaldo back in that starting eleven. That was my until I got to know Ronaldo and, and I really researched the, the project. That was my belief of of what had happened. Um, so I think you know just to uncover that mystery to start with to show all the pressure that was on on his shoulders to explain why he would have had that um that fit just before the, the world cup final and then to talk about the injuries and and eventually the redemption it just felt like the perfect story and, and i've said many times that it feels to me like a hollywood script it's almost one of those one of those screenplays that you can you you can scarcely believe you know it almost feels untrue unreal unfathomable that really this happened to not only a footballer but the greatest footballer of the time uh, so yeah it was it didn't take us long to realize that that was the story we wanted to concentrate on um but a film like this takes at least a couple of years um and there's a lot of pre-production that goes into it obviously there's you know you've got to look deep into the story speak to a lot of different people we we uh, the first thing we did was to take all the Brazilian, um, the Spanish and the Italian newspapers and search for Ronaldo's name every single day from 1998 to 2002. So we had every single story that was in the news in Brazil, Spain or Italy about Ronaldo for that entire four year uh, time frame. So that helps you start to build the story and, and understand, especially in Italy, you know, the, the, the whole controversy with Hector Cooper, which for me was... I knew something about it, but I didn't realize how entrenched uh, that was. And 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 a lot of the Inter fans that we spoke to look back at that period and really detest Hector Cooper for the way he treated uh, Ronaldo. So that was that was interesting. And then it's just a case of finding the archive, and that that in itself is is a huge job. We had um, archive producers all around the world working on this film because we ended up getting archive in the film from eighty different providers. We looked through over 300 hours of, of archive material. There's uh, more than 2,500 photos that we've gone through to, to get the photos that, that end up in the film. So there's a lot of, of pre-production that goes into it, even before I've started with the script. Yeah, and, and you touched on it there. That's an incredible workload. It, it's amazing to see. And you can kind of tell that there is such a, a heavy workload behind what was, as I said, um, on a couple of occasions now, a really, really um, brilliant documentary. And I think anyone that hasn't seen it yet, get your eyes on it because it's been brilliant. But you touched on the 98 World Cup final there. For our listeners that maybe don't know, and I'm sure most of them do, Brazil are due to take on host France, of course, in the final. And Ronaldo has a seizure hours before kickoff. And in a brilliant conversation with his teammate, Roberto Carlos, not just with Brazil, but Real Madrid of course um, in the 2000s that we see in the documentary uh, Ronaldo explains that it was due to kind of emotional stress more than anything physically it was a perfect example of how professional sports people's mental health can take its toll wasn't it because it was when I talk about the documentary being unique it was kind of little things like that where you don't see that regularly you don't see sports people talking about mental health particularly sports people who were in their prime in the 90s and 2000s yeah, and and obviously, I think um, we, the the mental health discussion is is kind of more frequent nowadays. I think back, back in the day, Ronaldo said that he didn't that the Brazil team didn't even have a psychologist. Literally, he had no one that he could talk to about those pressures, and he wanted to hide it from his teammates because he didn't want them to worry about him. 
So it was just this pressure building up inside him and there was no outlet. There was nobody to talk to. And I found that very, very interesting. And um, you, you mentioned the relationship with Roberto Carlos. You wouldn't believe how close they are. It's, it, was, it was beautiful to see. They spent the first 10 minutes of the interview just telling each other how much they loved each other. And every, every question that we asked Roberto Carlos, he would just tell us, wax lyrical about Ronaldo. And Ronaldo would do the same about about Roberto Carlos, they're, they're, they've got a really, really close friendship. Um, they're really good pals. And as you mentioned, they were together at Real Madrid as well. But I think having experienced something like that, Roberto Carlos literally told us that, you know, he thought Ronaldo was going to die. And and to have gone through that together, obviously they shared the room in, 2000, in 1998. So um, Roberto Carlos was the only person that was there present when Ronaldo had the seizure. And to have experienced that and come through the other side and then gone on to win the World Cup together in 2002 and put those demons to rest, I think um, just solidified their friendship and their, yeah, their absolute best buds. Yeah, you could really tell that in the documentary and it's great to know that it uh, was happening off camera as well, I must say, because they are two legends of the game. Um, but we also get a great insight into the personal turmoil he went through after the final because he was only named in the starting lineup right before kickoff, which is something I didn't know either. And the build up to it was a bit messy and possibly spilled out onto the pitch as they obviously lost 3-0, Zidane getting two goals that day and Emmanuel Petit getting the other one. I, as I said, I never realised how much of an impact it had on him because he just continued scoring goals immediately after afterwards so you assume he moved on quickly but that wasn't the case at all was it Duncan no um no it was it was a horrible a horrible night uh, not just for him but for, for the whole team and, and interestingly enough in the documentary it's a very emotional moment where his, where his mum explains that she had no idea she didn't even she didn't even know he'd had this seizure it, it had been hidden from her and, and no one as she said no one bothered to, to tell her before the game so she watched that final just thinking her son was having an off day uh, Brazil were having an off day and had no idea about what had happened uh, pre-match. And Bebeto actually says that as the team are on the on the bus going to the stadium, Ronaldo at this stage is, has been taken to the hospital um, for tests to see what had, to see what had happened and to see whether he is in fact um, able to play. He, apparently, the bus was in total silence. So usually, they're obviously you know the Brazilians have, have got their music, they're, they're they're singing their samba and dancing in the on the bus in the aisle um, and Bebeto explained that the, the bus was just completely silent all, all anyone wanted to know was was what was going on with Ronaldo um, they weren't thinking about the World Cup they weren't thinking about the final they weren't thinking about being champions it was it was just Ronaldo's health that they were worried about because while he was unconscious Roberto Carlos left the room and, and, and was shouting for a doctor and apparently 14 or 15 of the, of the squad ran to the room and, and they were all in there while while Ronaldo was was unconscious, so everyone had, or a lot of the team had seen it, and um, it obviously hit them hard. As you say, they went on to lose three 0 It undoubtedly affected them. Ronaldo himself says that. So too did the players and 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 Zagallo, the manager at the time. And then after that, uh, he was a scapegoat. He was blamed. Um, he was blamed by the Brazilians for playing, um, having had that seizure. A lot of them felt that he should have stayed on the sidelines and and not played. They they felt like maybe it was a selfish decision of of his because he was so desperate to play in a world cup final when in reality he was the best player in the world at the time. And it was, it was a responsibility he felt to go on on the field and, and try and win the game for Brazil. So that was pretty unfair. Um, and in the rest of the world, just the conspiracy theories just um, went, went around like wildfire. It was, it was incredible. And, and we touch on it in the film, but um, there were, there were theories that 
uh, from his knee injury to the fact that he had an upset stomach to the fact that Nike had forced him to play. Um, other people said that there was a, an agreement between the Brazilian and the French government because of the World Cup was in France and, and, and apparently France had paid Brazil to, to let them win the World Cup. I mean, all these ridiculous rumours that were flying around. And, and obviously the truth was that he was deeply unwell, could have died, um, was rushed to hospital and in his mind was extremely courageous, went out there, put all that behind him and, and tried to win Brazil the World Cup. It didn't happen, but luckily for, for our story and obviously for Ronaldo and the Brazilians, it did happen four years later. Yeah, it did. And just before we get on to that, you had mentioned Ronaldo's mother there. And I have to say, there was a smile on my face every time I seen her. She really was, other than maybe Ronaldo himself, the star of the documentary. And there's a brilliant line at the start of it, which I think kind of encompassed everything that Ronaldo was to the world, where she says that he didn't belong to her, he actually belonged to the world. And I just thought it was it was just perfect when she said it. It just seemed to apply perfectly to the person that Ronaldo was. It's hard to fathom how big he was until you actually dig a little deeper into it because I obviously, as I said, was a huge fan of Ronaldo. But really, until I watched this documentary, um, I didn't realise that he was probably before Messi and Ronaldo the global superstar in world sport, really. Yeah, I think he was, you know, we've said many times that he was the prototype of the modern footballer. He was the the, the football superstar before there were really football superstars. And, and of course they existed. And, and you know, you've got your Pelé's and your Maradona's and, you, and your Johan Cruyff's. But Ronaldo was everywhere. He was, um, he was a fan's favourite at every club he was at. But also, you know, he was being used by... Um, all the big brands. He was obviously um, used by Nike to, to sell football boots when, when Nike didn't make football boots. That was, that was the very start of, of kind of their surge into the football market. But he was also, um, he was also used by brands all over the world. You know, he was a, a sex symbol for women as well. And, and, and probably for, for, for men too, you know, he was, he was just, he was just everything that a celebrity is these days, but wasn't 20 odd years ago. Um, and if you if you take that and you think that he wasn't in the bubble that modern footballers are in, um, it was a very difficult life for him because there was a lot of pressure on him and he didn't have the support network that, that modern celebrities and footballers would have had. And obviously you had mentioned the World Cup there in 2002 as well, which just probably put him through another stratosphere again. But before that, and again, this is something the documentary delves into brilliantly, um, his struggles at Inter Milan, you mentioned there the manager, of course, the Argentinian manager who maybe he was having struggles under Hector Cooper. He has a tendon injury in his knee and he gets injured again on his return in a Coppa Italia game away to Lazio, if I'm not mistaken. That ordeal and his recovery, which looked impossible, I couldn't believe what I was watching at the time. I didn't, again, as I said, I didn't realise how bad that injury was. Could you give us an insight into what he was like when he was speaking about that? Because he seemed a bit emotional in the documentary. Yeah, he was. And and um, you, you'll have noticed in the in the documentary that Ronaldo is the only, the only character that looks straight down the camera. So we actually had a contraption whereby... Um, it's kind of like a, a it's, it's a system with with mirrors where basically we reflect onto the camera lens the image of the interviewer who's interviewing him. So you can you can Ronaldo can see the interviewer, but he's looking straight down the camera. So it's 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 not it's not awkward where you're asking an interviewee to to look straight at the camera because that would be completely unnatural. He's looking down the camera, but he's seeing the interviewer. Um, 
But what we can also do with that is, is put images onto that screen. So we filmed him during the interview. We filmed him watching, um, for example, his best goals and also watching the injury. And the moment where he's watching the injury, we didn't put it in the film because it would have broken up that sequence of, of images, which was far too powerful to, um, to, 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 to have broken up because I really wanted, you know, we were inspired by the Senna documentary where um, you see that final lap that Senna's on and, and you watch the whole thing with just ambient sounds and you know something terrible is going to happen. And obviously most people watching the Senna documentary will know the outcome. And it's just so powerful because there's no voiceover, there's no music, there's nothing except just the, um, just the ambient sound of him driving in his car. And for us, we wanted to kind of recreate that with that moment where Ronaldo's running with the football and, and you know that something terrible is about to happen. Um, so, so yeah, that was, that was a very powerful moment. We didn't want to interrupt it with Ronaldo's face watching the, the footage, but I can tell you it's, it's extremely powerful. And you see him just wince. He, he can hardly watch it. And he said to us that he really struggles to, to watch that image. And, and it was one of the moments where his mum broke down in the, in the interview as well. You know, she didn't break down when we were talking about 1998, although she got emotional, but she, she did break down when she was talking about his injury because there was so much expectation. You know, he'd done so well to get back from that first injury. His son had just been born. And six days after the birth of his son, it all seemed perfect that Ronaldo was returning to play um, in the final of the, the Coppa Italia. And he was on the pitch for about, I think, six and a half minutes. And and his knee goes again, and it's the same knee, and it's the same injury, except this time 10 times worse. And he's out for nearly two years. I mean, it was it was just a disaster, and it's a very emotional moment in the film. Um, it, was a, it was an emotional moment during the interviewing process, not just with Ronaldo, but like I mentioned, with his mum and with his teammates. It's, I think it's probably one of the nastiest injuries in, in, in football history. It's, it's one of those that I've got Italian friends that, that tell me it was a bit like um, 9-11 for them. It's like everyone knows where they were when they found out or they saw the footage of Ronaldo um, breaking down for the second time. It was, it's, I think it's in, in football history, it's a very impactful moment. And in the documentary, it definitely was. And, and for Ronaldo, it was extremely emotional, yeah. Yeah, it was so memorable. It was shot so brilliantly, I must say. And of course, uh, my overriding memory of it too was Marcelo Lippi, I think, was the Inter Milan manager at the time. And he just has his hands on his head and he's shaking and, and he can't believe what's happened. I think the whole world kind of felt the same way as Marcelo Lippi at that time. That We were just devastated to see what had happened. But to happier times, of course, as everyone knows, he, he does score eight goals at the 2002 World Cup and in some ways carries Brazil to victory, even though maybe that's a bit of an overstatement, I don't know. But there are two things in particular about this that people may not know, and I certainly didn't know either. And I, I would count myself as a bit of a football guru, so this is how good this documentary is, I have to say. First of all, there was a chance Romario was going to be picked ahead of him, wasn't there? Because Ronaldo had not been playing an awful lot with Inter in the run-up to the World Cup. Absolutely, yeah. Because of the the Hector Cooper debacle, there was like um, a, a good chance that Ronaldo wasn't going to make the team, and he ended up only playing in the last five games of the season for Inter. So there was a big question mark about whether Ronaldo was match fit enough to go to a World Cup. Um, obviously, as well, the World Cup, as we know, is uh, especially with this one that we're that we're watching at the moment is. It's a, it's a lot of games in a very short amount of time. So you need your players to be to be super fit. And Ronaldo was far from super fit at that point. And to have started that first game 
and to have scored in every game but one, as you mentioned, playing uh, scoring eight goals in seven games, it was it was unbelievable. But yeah, there was at the time there was um, a real call for Romario to be included ahead of Ronaldo in that squad from a from a big part of um, the Brazil fan base to the extent that when Felipao announced the squad and Romario wasn't in the squad, there was a lot of uh, Romario fans outside that hotel that were absolutely furious. And when Filipao got in his car, they started rocking his car from side to side, trying to turn it over. Um, and the security guards had to get involved. So there was there was a lot of um, um, anger in Brazil at the time. Not that Ronaldo necessarily had been included, but certainly that Ronaldo had been included instead of Romario. But obviously, uh, Filipao knew what he was doing. He certainly did because he did inspire um, Brazil to victory, as I said. But while he was doing that, he's scoring all of these goals and everyone is praising him, of course. And the world is watching on in kind of awe at this man who's taking on probably the biggest sporting event of all time and almost dominating it single-handedly. His head is full of thoughts about his fragile knee and that he may get injured again, particularly as the tournament moves on. How badly had that affected his own mindset at the time? Because you would think it didn't because he scores loads of goals. But in the documentary, again, it's incredible to see what he's thinking kind of in between these games and what might happen to him, that his World Cup could come to an end at any stage. Yeah, it was great um, because the, one of my favourite scenes in the whole film is is when Felipe Scolari and, and and Ronaldo are talking about um, the kind of the, the training sessions during the World Cup, and Scolari just says that uh, Ronaldo is one of those players that you just have to leave him alone because Scolari says he likes to be on top of players at all times, but he realised quite quickly that that Ronaldo was one of those players that you just can't be on top of and you just got to let him do his thing. And Roberto Carlos was laughing with us a lot about that. He's, he's, he's a funny guy. And, and he was telling us that every day they were having arguments, every single day. And Ronaldo was really winding up Scolari because he wouldn't, all he wanted to do was shoot in practice. He didn't want to do any running. Um, and Scolari kept trying to get Ronaldo to do these drills and Ronaldo would just disappear with the football and just practice his shooting. And, and, and basically the, the Brazil captains went up to Scolari one day and said, if we want to win the World Cup, we need this guy to score goals and you need to leave him alone. And from then on, Scolari sort of left him alone. So, so um, yeah, that, that, I think that, that changed things. And, um, but their relationship's hilarious. And, and Scolari's one of those guys, despite that kind of tense relationship, Scolari had nothing but good things to say about Ronaldo and, and said that they remain firm friends. And obviously, you know, Ronaldo changed Scolari's life as well because he became a World Cup winner and, and, and being the manager of the Brazil team that won the fifth World Cup. We talk about that a lot in the film because in Brazil, it was so important. Being five times champions was enormous for them, pentacampeones, um, and they did it in 2002. And let's see if they win their sixth this year. Yeah, and on Scoreline this weekend, we spoke to the man that actually designed that Brazilian kit, uh, Craig Buglass. And of course, that was the kit they wore against Germany in the final. Very iconic kind of imagery of Ronaldo celebrating his two goals um, with that Brazilian kit. And they obviously win that fifth title, which was incredible. But something that really stood out to me as well, he hugs the team doctor that had helped him recover before full time in the final. And they're both incredibly emotional. Then he hugs Ronaldinho and it was just brilliant to see. I was nearly crying myself, if I'm being honest with you. Yeah. Um, his redemption from being blamed for losing in 98 to starring in 2002 was complete and it is perfectly depicted 
depicted in the documentary, I must say. Everything is important in a documentary like this, but how key was it for you to get that moment right? Because it felt like the perfect tie-in from where the documentary kind of had begun in terms of how devastating the 98 final was for him to all the way back to the 0-2 final, where, as everyone remembers, it was just the perfect ending to the perfect tournament. Yeah, well, the whole documentary is bookended by by those two two finals, really, or at least the two World Cups. And um, you'll have noticed watching the documentary, however many times you have, that in in um, nineteen ninety eight, <laughs> well, exactly in nineteen ninety eight, there's there's that really long shot um, of Ronaldo after the final whistle, where France is celebrating, and we just stay with Ronaldo, and there's no dialogue; it's just the ambient sound, and he just looks absolutely miserable. His, literally his lips are downturned. He looks like he's about to cry. And we mirrored that in 2002. But obviously the, the emotions are completely different. Even though he's crying, it, it's emotional, happy tears, if you like. So we've got in 1998, we've got a really long shot of Ronaldo devastated um, at the defeat. And in 2002, we've got that long shot where we just stay with Ronaldo. He comes off the pitch after being substituted. And he says that, he went to the bench and just thought about the last four years of his life. He even says, which was fantastic, obviously, for me, he says, um, I watched the movie of my career for the last four years of my, my career. And at that moment, we just wanted to stay with Ronaldo. So if, if you'll notice everything, the sound of the football comes right down. The, the camera zooms in on Ronaldo. The images are incredible. And obviously, we were extremely fortunate because we didn't film those ourselves. These are images that we found them. And when we stumbled across them, we were just dancing in the editing suite because you couldn't have asked for more. This cameraman just zooms in on Ronaldo's face and just stays with him. And you can really see him. He's just delivered that line, but you can see the cogs going in his mind and he's thinking about what he's done and and the last four years and, and what he's done in the final and what this means to him, what it means to the team, what it means to Brazil, what it means to everyone who's been involved in his story. And as you say, Ronaldinho comes and hugs him and you can see him break down. Then it's, it's actually his PR manager, um, Rodrigo Paiva, who comes and, and hugs him and and you can see him break down again. And, and then Paiva says that Ronaldo turned to him and said, God's been good to me, hasn't he? And, and just, you know, that line that was is, incredible, is yeah. so powerful. It's, it's, it's so powerful. And it was one of those, you know, moments of, of magic and, and, and a huge amount of fortune that that image existed because you couldn't have, you couldn't have asked for anything better at that moment in the documentary, I think. Yeah, I think most people watching it, I know Craig, who, as I said, designed the kit, was just in tears watching it because it was such a such a powerful moment um, with such an inspiring figure. But for yourself now, Duncan, obviously, what would you hope is the legacy of this particular documentary? Because you've done incredible work in the past. Uh, a lot of our listeners will have known Take the Ball, Pass the Ball and El Presidente, of course. But, I mean, this one in particular just struck such an emotional chord with so many people. What what kind of would you like to be like this documentary in particular to be remembered for? Well, I think we had a responsibility um, to make one of the greatest sports documentaries of all time. And, and we went into this saying that, you know, Ronaldo's story firstly Ronaldo as a footballer was probably the greatest nine of all time the greatest striker of all time um his story is arguably the best redemption story that exists in football and as a consequence this film had to be one of the greatest sports documentaries it had to be one of the greatest if not the best football documentary so we went in with that mindset um and that meant that 
to as much an extent as possible, money was no issue. I never wanted to be in a position where we were saying no to a certain image because it was too expensive. Um, also, the, the, even though the timescale um, was fairly strict because we had to be done before the World Cup, but we obviously poured our hearts and our time into this project for the last two years. Um, so it, we went into it with, with the aspirations that it would be you know, obviously I wanted to be on the level of, I've mentioned Senna already in the Maradona documentary. Asif Kapadia is a, is a director that I've looked up to for many years now and, and has been a huge inspiration behind my career. So those were the levels that we wanted it to be at. Um, and I just hope that people, when they watch it, and, and like I said, I've, I've read very well, no negative comments. Everyone seems to have enjoyed it. And I just hope that people feel that it's on the level of those other, those other documentaries that, I think have been so inspirational for me and so many people over the last few years. And, and the, the best review I'll ever get was Ronaldo. The first time he watched it, we took it, we took um, the film to London. He was filming that Nike ad. I don't know if you've seen it. Yes. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. He was filming that in London. And um, he was in London for, for five or six days filming that. And he had, they were filming in the morning and he had afternoons free. So he's got such a busy schedule. He, he said to us that that was the best time for us to show him the film. So we, we hired a, a private sc screening room, we showed him the film and and he literally came out in tears and he and he gave me a massive hug and he just he he just said he he tried to talk and he he said I, I got a lump in my throat I can't even tell you I can't even talk to tell you how good it was but it's amazing and I loved it and it's going to win prizes and blah 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 and he he just waxed lyrical about it he couldn't have he couldn't have spoken better about the film said he wouldn't change anything said he absolutely loved it his his um his girlfriend was there as well she told me that she'd she was she'd been in tears two or three times, so that was that was a wonderful experience. Um, so that in itself is is kind of um, you know that that makes me feel feel very good about about the work we've done over the last couple of years, and I just hope that other people will watch it and, and feel the same. Yeah, I think everyone that's watched it is in agreement that it is hands down one of the best sports documentaries of all time, if not the best. It's certainly, uh, for me, it's the best, but it's up there for a lot of people, I think. And just before I let you go, Duncan, and you've been very, very generous with your time, so I'm conscious of that. How enjoyable was the documentary and what does the future hold for yourself now? Because obviously, you know, the 2002 World Cup probably um, put Ronaldo into a different stratosphere, as I said, and maybe this documentary has done the same for your career. I hope so. Yeah, yeah, that that would be fantastic. I mean, it was it was wonderful to work on. I feel extremely fortunate, very, very lucky that a Ronaldo trusted me to tell this story, and I think a lot of that came from the fact that we worked together on El Presidente, which you mentioned earlier. Um, but also that this story had never been done before. I mean, I, I found it incredible it, as we were kind of finding more out about his, especially his time. Um, in Italy and, and and all the hoops he had to jump through and the situation with Hector Cooper and and everything that went into that story it just felt like more and more like this Hollywood screenplay and I just couldn't believe that that I was the one that was going to be able to tell this story I felt extremely fortunate I still do um, I'm very proud of how it's turned out obviously it's not just me it's, it's a huge team effort there's a lot of us that have worked on it from um, all the guys at Zoom Sport Films to, to all the freelancers around the world that have helped us and that have worked on this film to the guys at The Zone as well because it, The Zone was the, the client that, that believed in this project and, and put up the production budget um, and it was later uh, sold by them to BBC so, so that was why it was on BBC4 but you know it's a, it's a huge team effort 
think everyone that's been involved in it is very proud. Um, and in terms of a legacy, yeah, I, I mean, I hope it's uh, it's going to be difficult to top uh, in terms of a redemption story. <laughs> I think, you know, that's the last redemption story I can do because there'll never be a better one. But we've got a few um, few ideas for for the next documentary. So, you know, watch this space. Certainly will. Well, Duncan, congratulations on the documentary once more and thanks ever so much for giving up your time to speak to me about it today. Cheers, Robbie. Duncan McMahon there, writer and director of The Phenomenon. Ronaldo, if you haven't seen it already, go watch it now. It's absolutely superb and it has to be better than the current World Cup, if nothing else. <laughs>